Hello and welcome to Future Proof Folk, the podcast where we chat to fascinating people working on exciting projects which keep the folk music scene in England moving forward, growing and generally staying amazing. I'm Owen Ralph. This week I'm joined by broadcaster Matthew Bannister, who has done all sorts of amazing things on radio and beyond over the course of his career, but is currently creating a wonderful podcast called Folk on Foot, which is what we will largely be discussing in the first half, along with Matthew's experience of folk music growing up. In the second half, we talk about the impact Matthew had on Radio 1, repositioning it for a younger audience in the early 90s, before we turn to audiences in the folk scene, looking at where we're at and where we're going. So Matthew, thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure. Do you want to start off by telling us a bit about who you are for the small number of people who may not know? Well, yes, I'm sure there are lots of people who don't know. Um, I, I've had a, a sort of twin-track career, partly as a broadcaster and partly as a media manager. So I started out in, in radio broadcasting as a reporter and presenter. Uh, I did it in local radio, in Radio 1 Newsbeat, at Capital Radio. And then I went into broadcast management and I ran a station called GLR which was the BBC's London station where people like Chris Evans and Chris Morris and Danny Baker uh, really made their names for the first time. I did some work in the corporate centre of the BBC and then I went to run Radio 1 and there was a controversial repositioning of Radio 1 in the 1990s when we moved to uh, cast off its rather old-fashioned image and attract a new younger audience and through that, we really supported the boom in Britpop and uh, and dance music as well in the 90s. Uh, then I became director of radio at the BBC, chief executive of production. But uh, in 2000, I gave all that up and went back to broadcasting. And so I've done shows on Five Live, on the World Service uh, and on Radio 4, where I still currently present the obituary programme Last Word every week. Um, and last year in, in 2018, I started a podcast called Folk on Foot. Do you ever miss the, the managerial side of things or are you much happier as a broadcaster now? Uh, I love not being in the management. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, I, I don't regret having done it. Uh, and, I, and it was a wonderful experience to be able to be in charge of Radio 1 and then in charge of all the BBC's radio stations and, and for a short time in charge of all the BBC's television and radio production. I mean, what a, an extraordinary toolkit that is to to play with and you know I hope that uh, I left things better than they were when I started but the frustrations of it come in the bureaucracy of the BBC and the distance that you find yourself from what you actually started out wanting to do in the in the business which was to create programs with small groups of like-minded people Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's what I wanted to get back to when I when I stepped back into broadcasting and I haven't regretted that decision for a second. Mm-hmm. And that very much describes Folk on Foot, your podcast. Well, Folk on Foot is like going back to my three passions. Mm-hmm. Um, folk music, which has been something that I've been a fan of since I was a teenager. Um, walking in different parts of the country, and not, not just in the wonderful landscapes that there are, but also in cities too. I, I love walking. And that's again been something that my parents introduced me to in the Peak District near Sheffield, where I was born and brought up. Um, so I, I've loved that all my life. And then telling stories in sound, you know, which has really been the thread that has run through my career. Mm-hmm. You know, I love sound. I love radio. That's that's my favourite medium. And so to bring those three together at this stage in my life and to, because of podcasting, to be allowed just to launch it out there to see if an audience came was just a fantastic opportunity. Yeah. And it's it's a really interesting sound experience in general, I think, because... So you're, you're out there walking with a folk musician and you've got kind of all these sounds of, of nature around you and you're kind of describing the, the landscape and things. 
and you know there's me with my headphones on on a commuter train packed in and it kind of it's a bit of an escape from that yes and i mean a lot a lot of people have told us that they actually go for a walk to listen to it okay. so that they go for on the walk with us effectively so yeah. they, they put their headphones on and then they you know they walk down a, a moor or they walk on a country path or they walk down the pavement near their city home or whatever so that they feel they're walking alongside us yeah. and i and i think i mean because we've got these amazingly talented producers uh, natalie steed um, and sally spurring have got a, an extraordinary ear for recording the sounds of the natural world the crash of the waves on the on the beach or the curlew circling overhead as kareem polwart was talking to us or the crackle of the campfire when sam lee is telling stories about nightingales just before we go into the bushes to hear him sing with the nightingales themselves mm-hmm. uh, and those producers capture those sounds and then mix them in such a a beautiful way that I hope the listener is feeling like they're almost sitting there around the campfire or on the beach with us. Do you have a particular aim in mind for the podcast? How would you judge whether it's been a success, would you say? Well, first of all, if people enjoy it. Um, but I think it's it's more than that for me. I mean, I, I wanted to share my passion for this kind of music with more people. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to give a platform for the artists. I also wanted to explore the very obvious link that there is between folk music and place yeah you know so folk music is so obviously very often of its own place you know it comes from a tradition of Northumberland or of South Wales or wherever Um, and to have the song sung in the place itself somehow gives them a resonance that, that they don't otherwise have so I wanted to do that I also think you learn something from the podcast about history and natural history Mm -hmm. when if you listen to the young'uns taking me around the Hartlepool headland you know where some of the earliest Christian activity took place and they they sing songs in the in the very ancient church there and they talk about the history of the fisher folk coming onto the beach and you, you in each of them you learn something about the natural history of the place or the history of the place and that too is fascinating for me but also I think it is in these terribly troubled and difficult political times, it's wonderful to escape into nature. And yeah. Martin Simpson's in the new season, and he talks about how beneficial it is to your mental health to walk in nature. And I think a lot of the people we've interviewed agree with that, and, and I certainly do. Have you thought of doing any in a kind of city area? Or yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, Hartlepool obviously is is a more urban landscape, yeah. and certainly with with Martin, we walk in Scunthorpe, mm-hmm. um, and we walk in Scunthorpe because that's where Martin was born and brought up, and he takes us back in a very emotional journey to his childhood home, and we go into the garden of his childhood home, and he's very moved and touched by to see the apple tree there, which he describes as his jungle, mm-hmm. where he used to hide from his mother, who was quite a formidable woman um, and the and the garage wall is there um, and he used to the, his, his brother caused a hole in the garage wall by kicking a football against it and Martin used to crawl in there as a little kid and hide under the workbench and he found a pile of maps and he used to go on imaginary journeys with these maps and this has inspired a song that he wrote called Maps mm-hmm. which he sings in the garden looking at the garage wall where yeah. he used to hide as a as a child so yeah and you can see from that garden you can see the steelworks which is the you know single biggest employer in in Scunthorpe um, and, and and if you think about a more urban landscape John Bowden for example is fascinated by um, urban decay mm-hmm. and he took us into the Loxley Valley near Sheffield to a disused brick factory um, and 
um, he, you know, he said, well, it's lovely around here. There's a lovely river and some trees and all the rest of it. But I'm fascinated by this decaying urban landscape here, which this brick factory used to supply the bricks for the steelworks in Sheffield, which, of course, have declined now dramatically. Therefore, the brick factory went out of business. But John loves the way in which nature is reclaiming the brick factory, shooting its shoots up through the the old pottery and the bricks and then there's bits of old rusty machinery in there and that inspired his uh, solo album uh, Songs from the Floodplain mm. um, and so he sang Songs from the Floodplain songs dancing in the factory in the factory that inspired them so yes Urban as well as uh, and we've done um, in this next season we've done Lisa Knapp in Tooting in <laughs> South London because yeah. Lisa Knapp comes from Tooting and she's uncovered this extraordinary ballad uh, called The Tooting Tragedy, which she found in the Bodleian Library, um, which is about um, a, a scandal at the time, in Victorian times, of a children's home where the children were very badly neglected and they became subject to an outbreak of disease and hundreds of them died. And even at that time, it provoked an outcry led by Charles Dickens, who mm. wrote to the newspapers about it. Uh, but Lisa found this ballad and she sings it for us to a tune that she's composed in the graveyard where some of the children who died in that tragedy are buried in Tooting in, in South London. Wow. So, and Kerry Andrew, Andrew, um, you are Wolf, took me to the Brockwell Lido because she, she gets a lot of her inspiration in the Brockwell Lido. It was yeah. pretty chilly, I have to tell you, <laughs> when we went in for a swim. But so we've, we've got very different landscapes. Or, uh, you know, in this new season, Duncan Chisholm has taken me to the most remote place we've ever been to in, in Folk on Fort, which is called Sandwood Bay, which is this extraordinary, one of, the, one of the most beautiful beaches in the whole of the UK, right on the northwestern tip of Scotland near Cape Roth. It's a four-mile walk from the nearest road. So we walked into the beach, and it just opens out in front of you, this white sand, and on the day we were there, it was, it was bright sunshine, but very windy, so mm -hmm. very... You know, chilly, but this extraordinary sun and the waves rolling in onto this white sand beach. And there are stories about a Viking longship being buried on, on the beach there because it was wrecked. A, a Spitfire crashed there in the Second World War. Uh, and people have seen spirits and hauntings. And that inspired Duncan's last album, which is mm -hmm. called Sandwood. Yeah. And so he plays some of that music on the beach with the waves rolling in behind him. So if I were to purloin your format right now and you were to take me on a walk where would you take me <laughs> uh two places really i mean i i i've had a house in west sussex for getting on for 30 years now mm -hmm. um and so i've spent a lot of time on the south downs way and of course the south downs way is redolent with all kinds of music um i was i was walking near rottingdean recently and uh that's the home of the copper family yeah. um home of that historic and shirley collins is not far away and of course vaughan williams and, and and people like that were around there collecting music and inspired by it so i suspect i'd take you for a walk on the south downs way which is that that wonderful escarpment that you look both ways you can see to the sea you can see inland and you can hear the skylarks ascending yeah. in the way that Vaughan Williams wrote that music. So tell me a bit about folk music in your life. You mentioned earlier that you've been a fan of folk music for a long time. When, when did you really start to get into it? Well, I was, uh, it started because I was learning to play the violin uh, when I was a kid mm -hmm. and, you know, in the usual classical way with scales and, you know, le um, exercises and bits of Mozart and J.S. Bach and things like that. Um, and I have to say that by the time I was... 13, 14, I was beginning to fall out of love with the whole 
process. Uh, I wasn't really enjoying it. Um, but I then heard an album called Legion Leaf by Fairport Convention. And I thought, wow, violins can do the most extraordinary things. Mm -hmm. You know, listening to Dave Swarbrick's electric violin on that album, I thought, this is a completely different kettle of fish. Yeah. And it really appeals to me, the freedom of it and the power of it and the invention of it all. And then I started to listen to the kind of songs that they were singing. And I thought, this is very English sounding songs or Scottish sounding songs. They're very much not the American rock and the kind of music I've been listening to elsewhere. Mm -hmm. This is maybe music for my culture. And I love these stories of witches and wizards and murders and adultery and all of that kind of stuff. So I, I got into all of that and, and, um, and I started a little folk band and I joined up with a guitarist and a, a woman who was a singer um, we used to do the folk clubs in Sheffield and and Derbyshire, mm -hmm. you know, on open mic nights and, you know, playing playing for in the upstairs rooms of pubs. And we actually made it the first time I ever appeared on the radio actually was on, on BBC Radio Sheffield on the folk programme, which was presented by a man called John Leonard, who's now in charge of the Radio 2 Folk Awards um, and who I later worked with at Radio 1. But in those days, he was a folk musician on the scene and he had a show on Radio Sheffield and he invited our band to do a little session. So I didn't appear as a presenter. I appeared playing the fiddle in a, a cover of Richard Thompson's I Want to See the Bright Lights Tonight <laughs> on Radio Sheffield. That was my first ever appearance on the radio. So I've, I've loved it ever since. And I mean, it, it's kind of come and gone in my life. It's always been there. And I kind of reconnected with it after I left the, the BBC management and went back to broadcasting in, in the early 2000s because I was doing a late night show on Radio 5 Live. Mm -hmm. And they did this sort of this week where they focused on the country and they sent me to a pub in a tiny hamlet in Devon, uh, which was a wonderful sort of community pub, uh, which was also the post office and the local shop. And they sold eggs and milk as well as beer. And it was one of those old-fashioned country pubs with the dark wood and, and a fire burning in the grate. And the producer said, well, I booked this band to play on the, on the show, and they were called Show of Hands. Mm -hmm. So Steve Knightley and Phil Beer came, and in this upstairs room of the pub with about eight people listening, they did a song called Country Life. And it was such a powerful song, a polemic about the working people of the country and uh, the way in which their voices hadn't been listened to. And I thought, hey, this is wonderful. So I, I listened to some more of their music and I began to think about what's happening in the folk scene and to try and listen to more artists who are making music. And so I reconnected with it then, really. And since then, you know, I've, I've been to see lots of artists and you know, collected lots of albums and you know, been back in touch with it. So that would have been around the time, I guess, when the if you want to call it the most recent folk revival, I guess it was really getting started with the Bellowheads and the Eliza Carthys and exactly, kind of people. Exactly. So, yes, so, you know, Eliza Carthy came along and it was really interesting and exciting to me to hear artists who were taking this music, this traditional music, and twisting it into new shapes yeah. and arranging it in new ways and, and presenting it on stage in an exciting and different theatrical way so all of those things made it a wonderfully exciting time to get back in touch with with folk music i think there's a there's a real thing about that excitement that folk music brings because my my story is very similar to yours in that i was learning classical violin and then i heard seth lakeman i had my mind blown that a violin could do that mm. i think it's that thing of discovering that you can do so many more things than you might have been told by your music teachers or that you might have previously heard a, a musician do because you say it's, it's all about that reinvention now i'm to 
the traditional music scene. Well, there's a freedom, yeah. I think about folk music that you don't get. I mean, in, in classical music, and I mean, I remember Eliza Carthy saying to us, "We walked with Eliza near uh, Robin Hood's Bay, where the family lives," and she was saying that Martin Carthy was trained as a choir boy, mm-hmm. and he had to spend an enormous amount of time getting rid of his training so that he could <laughs> sing in in a relaxed, authentic, you know, way of the people, yeah. rather than in that rather constrained classical music way. And so, t- I think some people take instinctively to the training and the rules of classical music and some people like me possibly you as well like to throw over the traces and go no we want to bend the note yeah no we want to you know we want to not hit it exactly on the beat no we want to do it in a different way and and there's also something very democratic about folk music I think which is what attracts me to it too which is that you know it, it the musicians seem to me to take part in it largely because they love the music yeah and uh, they realise they're never going to become multimillionaires doing that. But that's not what motivates them. Mm. What motivates them is the shared experience of making music. And so many of them talk about, you know, like the Unthanks with their singing weekend, or John Bowden has a community choir in uh, in Dunworth, and uh, Bella Hardy sings in a choir in her little village in Edale. And so many of them talk about the power of communal music making Mm. as opposed to the us in the audience them up there on the stage it's everyone sitting down together and and John talked eloquently about Bellahead after their big gigs their big theatrical set piece gigs would take over a pub and invite people to come to a session and people were you know he said he didn't want people who sat there on their hands and looked at him and expected him to entertain them he wanted people who were there to join in you know, in the, to join the communal session, yeah. and and I love that. And I mean, I went to the Isle of Skye recently, and it was in the winter. There was no real tourism going on, and we stumbled into this pub miles from anywhere, and there were six musicians sitting around a table, and four other people in the bar, and the musicians were playing their hearts out. You know, jigs, reels, uh, pipes, fiddle, whistle for each other. And for the sheer joy of making music. And that's what I love about the folk scene. And do you think that's something that's going to continue? Because I guess there's there's a lot of talk about folk clubs being in decline and a lot of festivals struggling, venues closing, things like that. Is that kind of that core communal music making something you think is going to last? Or is it going to fade with the generations? Well, that's very interesting because... um, I suspect it will last because I think it's a natural human instinct to actually make music in groups. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? I think that it's a sort of primeval instinct to do that. Whether it's financially viable, I'm not sure. But that doesn't mean that people won't do it for love. You know, people, you know, that's how these songs have been passed down. It's by people who've done it because their mother did it or their father did it or their sister did it. And they've learnt the songs and then they've passed them on to their daughter or their son. And this music, I think, will survive in that way because there are people who are so passionate about it and whether it survives as an industry I'm not really equipped to say because I'm not you know I'm not part of that industry in the in the formal sense so Mm -hmm. I don't know about the economics of it but I do know that you know as somebody who's watched the record business for some years since I was you know obviously involved in in it in Radio One and so on that the whole economics of the record industry and the music industry has changed dramatically and live music is now the engine room of it you know when I was at Radio 1 it used to be that you did a tour in order to promote your album which was how you made your money now you put the album out in order to give you a lift off for your tour which is how you make your money Um, and so performing live people do understand that they have to pay for it and people do understand that 
you know, it's a wonderful thing to do to go and hear performers live. So I, I'm kind of optimistic, you know. I, I mean, it, it may not survive in exactly the form that it always has done, but there's a fantastically vibrant bunch of artists involved in folk music. There's a huge tradition on which they're drawing, and there's the primeval need to make communal music. And there's the the increasing appreciation, I think, of the intimate gig. You know, I think that people are somehow turned off, or quite a lot of us are turned off by the big stadium event where you effectively go and watch it on your binoculars on the TV. And the idea of being in the upstairs room of a pub or, you know, a small arts venue up close to a musician's really playing their hearts out is a very compelling proposition. What do you think about the economics of making recorded music specifically at the moment so now a lot of people in the folk scene have been talking on twitter recently about kind of how difficult it is to actually get people to buy cds now because they're just going to go and stream, stream it on it. spotify what are your thoughts on that well you can't stand in the way of progress can you i mean you can't stand in the way of these technologies but i find you know myself personally that i, I live in a mixed economy do you know what i mean that streaming yeah. is right for some things that vinyl is right for for other things and and I'm I'm very much trying myself to try to keep these technologies going mm-hmm. so you know I'm somebody who's trying to keep bookshops going by going to bookshops not ordering online yeah. and, and and similarly with music you know although I have streaming you know I, I subscribe to streaming services and I use them for convenience I always try to buy the CD as mm-hmm. well because I understand that that money is going to the artist and I think you know we need to educate people I mean the same is true in the in the podcasting world where you know we're effectively giving away our content for nothing but we're asking our listeners to become patrons and to make a small contribution through crowdfunding to our costs and trying to educate them that this stuff doesn't arrive for nothing and the same you know so if you're an artist trying to make an album you have studio costs you have you know studio management costs you have production costs you have promotion costs you have packaging costs etc etc this stuff is not free and you know the people need to pay for what they value yeah to stop it from disappearing but you're not king canute you, you can't you can't stop the fact that of course large numbers of people are going to listen by via streaming services and they don't pay nearly as much as as you would get from selling an album so sticking on the the industry side of things i'd like to hear about a bit about what you saw when you went into radio one because Obviously, you're, you're quite well known for changing things up a lot when you got there. What were your first thoughts when you started? <laughs> well, I mean, there was a, the context is really interesting. So this was 1993, and Radio 1 was a very, very successful radio station. I mean, it had something like 19 million listeners a week. But it was, it was really heading down the middle of the road. And its audience it had been there since 1967, and a lot of its listeners had grown up with it since 1967, that baby boomer generation and the whole of BBC Radio was drifting older so uh, as Radio 1 got older with its listeners Radio 2 was getting even older and I mean I used to say that you know Radio 2 was like the station of Jimmy Young, David Jacobs, Manuel and his music of the mountains you know um, it was it was very much songs from the shows Mm -hmm. you know that kind of stuff and Radio 1 was like Radio 2 is now the mainstream middle of the road pop station um, and if you were a kid, the thing that was attracting you was the new commercial stations like Kiss FM uh, that were playing dance music all the time. And Radio 1 didn't do that. It had a little outposts of it, but it didn't do it all the time. Um, and so a whole raft of new competition was coming along for the young audience. 
And the BBC needed to offer a service to young people and it needed to offer a demonstrably public service radio station. So it wasn't going to go head-to-head with commercial stations. Mm -hmm. How were you going to do it? Well, the answer was you needed to move Radio 1 younger, and I would have liked it if they'd moved Radio 2 younger at the same time, but they didn't somehow manage to do that. That came later. But you needed to move Radio 1 younger and make it more different from commercial stations by espousing new music. It was about allowing new talent to have a platform Um, and particularly new British talent. And so we made that shift. And inevitably in doing that, we turned off large numbers of the older audience. Um, And so the audience fell and that precipitated a a press campaign that was very critical of of what we were doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, there were some DJs who didn't make it on the voyage. And John Burt, who was the Director General of the BBC at the time, used to say that some of the DJs on Radio 1 were older than him, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Prime Minister. And that was true. Um, And, you know, it wasn't an ageist policy because we obviously wanted to keep someone like John Peel, who was an iconic figure, and he'd been there since the start of Radio 1, and Annie Nightingale, who's still there now in, in her 70s. So people who were passionate about new music, we wanted to keep. But people who were symbolic of the old fun and frolics kind of regime, unfortunately, didn't find a role with us. And we wanted to bring in new people like Steve Lamack, like Mark Radcliffe, like Joe Wiley, like Tim Westwood, like Trevor Nelson, people who had a passion for music and were the experts in their field. Danny Rampling in dance music, Judge Jules. You know, so we brought in those people and then added to them people like Chris Evans, who, you know, for a a, a wonderfully brief time was an amazing breakfast show host. Mm-hmm. Was there ever any any room for folk music in that scene, or did that not fit with the audience? Well, that's very interesting. Get? I mean, obviously, I think at the time, if I had said I'm a folk music fan, the roof would have fallen in in the press <laughs> yeah. because the press were already sharpening their knives to try and prove that you know somehow I wasn't in touch with the zeitgeist or I wasn't in touch with what was going on. Uh, but, but that wasn't to say that there weren't some occasional plays I think Mark Radcliffe would probably have played uh, Eliza Carthy sometimes on Mm. on his late night show when he was when he was doing that but it certainly wasn't at the center of our vision yeah Um, you know and and we we did end up you know espousing a lot of guitar bands you know and that whole Oasis, Blur, um, Supergrass you know all, all that stuff really came out of us championing them because Commercial radio didn't touch that stuff yeah. for a long time after we had started playing it. So the, the the arrival of guitars was, you know, the resurgence of guitars was at, at the heart of it. But folk music was not really something that I was thinking about in terms of Radio 1's policy. I know you, you said the folk music industry isn't quite where you're at. But I mean, just just looking around at the kind of people who are there, do you, do you see the need for some kind of shift in audience, um, I guess, in a, in a sort of similar way to what you were thinking back then? Well, uh, I mean, you do notice as you go to gigs and festivals and so on that there's something of a mismatch between the age of the audience and the age of the performers Mm -hmm. quite often, Um, that you find quite a few people of my age in the audience and performers who are 20 or 30 years younger than than we are. Um, And and that's always been a mystery to me as to why that happens um, and, you know, why it is... Uh, seen as something that older people are drawn to. Now, of course, nobody wants to lose the older audience. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? There's a, the, you know, that would be the last thing on your mind. But if you can find a way of broadening out to embrace younger people to buy tickets and buy albums and listen to podcasts and, and so on, then 
that that's a great idea you know and i and i'm, and I'm not quite sure how you do it when I mean, we try to use um, social media as cleverly as we can to contact new listeners and to use other media to to get in touch with with new listeners but i don't know whether the word folk is a barrier mm. to some younger people i don't know you're in the right age group to tell me that um i would certainly say that people of my generation don't tend to use the word folk in the same way i would use it i like to have it as quite a quite a useful word to denote traditional music as opposed to new songs being written yeah so i think when when you talk about folk festivals or folk clubs and things i don't know if people necessarily understand what that is and i guess if you did start talking if you used the word traditional instead that might that's probably even more of a barrier i yeah. think and folk is a very very broad word isn't yeah. it you know and i mean you only have to look at the sort of things that spotify recommends to you when it tries to recommend folk i mean it's very american driven yeah. and you know singer songwriter and and all of that you know mark radcliffe said that he had, had struggled with the definition of the word folk but that he had eventually come up with the idea that it's the working people's music mm-hmm. you know that's pretty good if you think about it although you know there are still people writing songs now and you think well is that working people's music or or not i don't know but it's played on acoustic instruments in the kind of environment where traditional music is usually played so it fits into the into the category but it's hard to define isn't it yeah and and i think acoustic music has you know has been having a moment hasn't it you yeah. know i mean it, it, with with different demographics with with younger demographics so acoustic music and and i think also not being too po-faced and not having too many rules i remember when i was in in a band when i was a teenager um and we were playing the folk clubs and we sometimes took with us a friend who played the electric bass and he was often refused admittance wow. to the folk clubs on the ground that this wasn't the, this wasn't the proper thing to do yeah and you think well that's loopy do you know what i mean that yeah. that's that's bonkers you, you can't be purist about this you mm-hmm. have to embrace all sorts of things from you know traditional instruments because after all the guitar is not a traditional english folk instrument no. do you know what i mean um and so if if you want to hear kerry andrew beatboxing and layering her uh, music electronically that's fantastic and it's still folk music as far as i'm concerned yeah so i think not being purist and not being you know not putting the barriers up around it to exclude people is a good idea yeah, and I think this the idea of working people's music. I mean, it can be useful. It just has a bit of a, a bit of a handle, I think. But I think as it's problematic, I think both historically and today, in that you know who are the working people. But yeah, it's 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 not a perfect answer, is it? No, it's. I thought, but it comes from that tradition. I mean, I think in a way, you know, if you go to an exhibition of Picasso mm-hmm. and you look at the history of his life in art, when he started out, he made very traditional paintings yeah. you know figurative or landscape paintings and when he ended he was the revolutionary who'd thrown over the traces of art yeah but in order to get there he'd started as part of the tradition and i think it's often the case with with you know artists uh, painters and, and sculptors and things like that that they need to understand the tradition mm. before they throw over the traces and 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 remake it in a new shape um, so they need to be good draftspeople or, or, or whatever. And and maybe it's the same kind of thing here that, you know, if you come from the tradition and if you know about the tradition, then you have permission to remake it in a new way and to reinvent it and to, you know, use contemporary techniques and electronic instruments and whatever you need to do because you understand and love the tradition. 
yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the definition that I land on when I think about this, is that it's it's music that that you feel complete ownership of, even if you didn't write it. It's 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 kind of ours to do what we want with. And I think you're right, it's, it does get problematic when people are to put up the barriers and say, you know, you can't do that with the music. It's, it's, it's the working people's music, you have to sing it like the working people. There's no real reason to do that. Do you, th- do you think we need any sort of barriers around the word folk, or can it expand right into, into these acoustic pop musicians, essentially? I mean, in a way, nobody can control this. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? People yeah. will do what they want to do. They will listen to whatever they want to listen to. They will make music in the way that they want to make music. And and I, I resist the idea of putting barriers around anything and saying, go away, you're not folk, or go away, you're not rock, or go away, you're not jazz, or whatever. I, I just think that's a matter for for the beholder. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a matter in the eye of the listener. And one person's folk music might be another person's you know, rock. I don't know. But it, it, I, I resist the idea of saying... Uh, there's a kind of museum space called folk music and we won't allow any influences in and we won't allow anybody out. Yeah. I, I, I resist that idea. I like, I like the idea that you know, musicians are influenced by each other across genres um, and that you know, the things that bleed in from other areas add to the mix. So I, I, I don't think you have to be purist about it in any way and I think you know, my ears prick up when I hear somebody who's taken something from the tradition and then arranged it in a really interesting way. Like, yeah. for example, I was at the Topic Records 80th birthday concert at the Barbican, and Sam Lee was singing traditional songs with Bernard Butler, the guitarist out of Suede. Um, and it was an amazing sound and a wonderful um, combination. Mm. And, I, and I think it took forward um, the way in which you can think about that music. And I have no objection to that whatsoever. So thinking to the future now, what, what have you got lined up in your work over the next year or so? OK, well, we're, we're about to launch season three of Folk Comfort, which is six new episodes, starting with a, a special episode devoted to the Lost Word Spell Songs project, uh, which has come out of the amazing book uh, by Jackie Morris, the artist, and Robert McFarlane, the writer, uh, which tried to uh, reassert nature words that have been taken out of the children's English dictionary. Um, and, and there were these words like otter and acorn and kingfisher and adder that have been taken from the children's English dis- dictionary and replaced by emoji and uh, chat room and things like that. Yeah. And Jackie was very upset about that and got in touch with Robin McFarlane and he wrote these what he calls spells, acrostic spells, and she made these beautiful pictures. And it became a kind of phenomenon because people got so emotional about the fact that these words were being lost from children's vocabularies that they started crowdfunding to get it into schools. So there have been big crowdfunding activities in Scotland, uh, in different parts of the UK. Uh, Some hospitals have had these pictures painted on the walls to um, cheer their patients. And then it became this folk music project called The Spell Songs with people like Corrine Polwart, Judy Fowlis, Chris Drever, Rachel Newton, Kerry Andrew. Um, and they've made this, this amazing album of responding to these um, nature words and spell songs. So we've, we've done an episode with Jackie Morris walking from her cottage in Pembrokeshire with Beth Porter of the Bookshop Band. And we walk over the hills and Beth sings some of the songs. We've also recorded some of the songs with Judy Fowlis and Kerry Andrews given us some of her songs, so they're in there. And Jackie reflects on her relationship with nature, and then she ends up by painting an otter for us while Beth plays the cello, and she recounts the poem that Robert McFarlane wrote. So it's a beautiful 
starting episode. Then we've got Martin Simpson in Scunthorpe, we've got the Unthanks in Northumberland, uh, we've got John Smith in Brixham in Devon, which is where he grew up as a kid and uh, where he became obsessed with the guitar and just sat in his room overlooking the sea practising Nick Drake songs until he could play them uh, chord for chord and uh, pick for pick. And he takes us onto the harbour wall to sing his song Salty and Sweet and then he takes us up to the cliffs where he used to go as a kid to get solitude and peace and he sings Save My Life up there on the cliffs. Beautiful. Uh, Lisa Knapp in Tooting we've talked about and Duncan Chisholm at this amazing Sandwood Bay. So a fascinating season with lots of different backdrops and lots of different kinds of music. Uh, So that's taking up quite a lot of my time. I'm doing a sort of audio-visual show called Folk on Foot on Film, which I'm going to do for the first time at Sidmouth, um, where um, we're taking a lot of the film footage that we've shot on these walks and some of the sounds as well, and I'm turning it into a kind of presentation that I do on stage, and then I'll invite people to you know, ask questions, and hopefully some of the artists might join us along the way at some of these shows. I think Steve Knightley is going to come to the one at Sidmouth. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm doing BBC Countryfile Live with Martin Simpson. Um, we're going to Blenheim Palace, and we're doing an interview and uh, songs in the grounds of Blenheim Palace for that huge BBC Countryfile Live festival. So hoping to roll that stage presentation of the podcast out a bit. And then we're recording all the time as well. We're recording for season four now and I'm not going to tell you uh, who's going to be in season four because I'd like to save that up but we're we're still traveling the country with musicians we could be doing another one on Monday in most amazing places um, so I'm quite busy yeah great <laughs> right, well I'm very much looking forward to the new season Commander thank you very much it's a pleasure Thank you very much to Matthew and to you for listening. Do listen to Matthew's podcast, Folk on Foot. It's a genuinely wonderful listening experience. I would highly recommend it. I'll be back in a few weeks' time with another fascinating guest. This podcast is produced by Greenwood Side, an organisation dedicated to having more conversations about where the folk scene is at and where it's going. If you want to share your thoughts on anything you've heard in this podcast, you can drop us an email at podcast at greenwoodside.co.uk or find us on Twitter at greenwoodsideuk or look up greenwoodside on Facebook. Please do leave a review of the podcast on iTunes or whatever that podcasting service is now called or whatever other app you are using. To find more about any of this, please visit greenwoodside.co.uk.